Oh, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Tafcast, where we slowly unbutton the blouse of mystery revealing the naked truth behind United Task Force. As most of you are aware, we're currently celebrating our second birthday. So before we start, I would like to personally give a huge thanks to every single one of you who's been involved in getting uh, UNITAF to the point that it is and making it what it is today. Uh, I'm joined as always by our glorious eternal leader, James. Uh, Zuka, who will be handling the chat, and uh, probably the most special guest, uh, Squid. Welcome, guys. Hello. Hello. Emphasis on special. Spe special. Uh, so yeah, as as mentioned, um, we're, we've reached our second birthday. C congratulations to you, to everyone. Um, we yeah, I think <laughs> birthday, do we? No, we're not. I mean, you can, I'm not. Uh, you can yeah, do it solo, but we're not doing a group effort. Let's <laughs> um, let's just do like a, a huge retrospective of the past two years. Um, this goes; these sort of uh, questions or, or topics, of course, are opened up to anybody who is who is uh, listening. So, if if you have a question, you can raise your hand or uh, ask in the chat. If you at Zuka, that's the best way of getting your uh, question or comment. Uh, recognized and, and asked on the cast. Um, but yeah, so I'll just open this up to anybody. Um, let's talk about some of the most uh, outstanding moments and achievements over the past uh, two years. Squid, if anybody has one. Jeez, I don't know. <laughs> My memory is pretty horrendous, which is probably one of the reasons I make the videos, so I can go back and look and see what happened. Um, <laughs> I think it was yeah. Squid Squiddo's um, got you. you. You were on the first ever mission. You've been around ever since, but you're not really. You never really bothered to get involved in uh, the admin side. So you've got kind of a unique perspective of things. So it's always interesting. Yeah, I think um, part of why I like Unitaf is that you know there is that opportunity to get involved, but. I can also be part of this large organization and also not really bother to do anything except yeah. turn up yeah well i think honest. that's i think that's like the the important thing about uh an organization if you want to call it that like this is that is that we need people like squidder we need people who do just turn up and play in the roles that they play in and play them well because like without people like that you know we're just a bunch of people trying to organize something for ourselves yeah, and Squiddo is definitely, uh, we've got people on lots of different scales of, um, not really like the Milsim scale, but the great thing about Squiddo is like all of the clips you put out and obviously every week I'm literally dreading the day I see the thumbnail for the, you know, the video, the <laughs> Sunday that's just gone. Um, but you need that, that sort of um, camaraderie and um, ability to have fun whilst you're doing it because it is, a lot of it is quite serious and what makes a lot of that stuff funny is because we're not supposed to do those things because we're simulating we've got a lot of rules and regulations so um it's this fine line and being able to find the funny moments and stuff is you know really neat there's a lot of people that do that and um no spoilers but there is a, a new video coming out i think uh nice uh, montage video coming out next week or this or this uh, this week um we did the last one for 20,000 hours and we got this 
this one coming. So they're the sort of things that you know a lot of people join because of those things. Uh, obviously, not every mission is like that. It'd be absolute chaos, but um, they do have a lot of the memorable moments in them. Yeah, I definitely feel like sometimes I'm skirting the line between dicking around and uh, you know playing playing in a more serious manner. I just gotta skirt it the best you can. <laughs> What's the? Uh, some of us can get away with it more than others, I suppose. Is the way to put it. Um, I think for me, it's like there's a time and place, right? There's a time and place yeah, to definitely. mess around and have a laugh, and then there's a time and place to to be serious and. As long as you know which one is appropriate, then it's then it's fine. That's a lot I of think for me personally, like in the chat. <laughs> I was just gonna say, like, I think one of the like outstanding achievements from my point of view is it's just how fast we've grown over the past two years. Like, it, it still amazes me to look at that original. Google document that we put out to ask people that we knew whether they'd be interested in something like Unitaf and it has about 14 people on it. I think um, we'll probably come on to this because I think you said at the start, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the last two years, but you know, we, we did a podcast a little while back about sort of how Unitaf started and there is a little bit of danger of patting ourselves on the back a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of what we'll talk about today and tonight, if you like, um, over this podcast is the challenges and, and the future and stuff um, but at the same time I was thinking the other day you know this is the first time Unitaf's ever gone into a summer where there's not been a global pandemic we started Unitaf it was fingers crossed <laughs> when we started Unitaf you know we were coming out of well when we got our really rolling we were coming out of summer 20, uh, 2019 and then, of course, 2020 was, uh, March was COVID, so just as summer was about to start, um, the global pandemic came in. So we've only ever known that. Which I know a lot of our growth has, has to be put down to just the people and everything that everyone has done. But we have been blessed. When I say blessed is probably the wrong word to use, but we have benefited from that. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see what impact that, that has. I'm, I'm fully expecting this summer to see uh, less overall activity on an individual basis uh, until the winter and so we have to adapt to that it's going to be new for us yeah absolutely i mean usually in the gaming community summer is always a low point anyway because you know people are often enjoying their lives in the sun um, but yeah we've got we've got that and as you say like coming out of the, the global pandemic so yeah, it'll be interesting to see um but i think I think overall we've got a fairly decent, you know, member base who are are pretty hooked on on what Unitaf has to offer. So, I th I, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. Squid, have you got any favourite missions? I was like find it interesting because I can look back and like most missions are a blur. Like I'd, I'd have to look at your profile, but you know, most of us that have been here two years now, we've done in the hundreds of missions. And like they're all a bit of a blur, but then when you think of one, you can actually remember them all on an individual basis. Have you got any ones you really remember or really enjoyed campaigns, missions, and how do you, how do you feel like the quality of them or or the, how they've changed over since the first one to the most recent? Um, yeah, like you say, like I think I could probably go back through like the the website and look at everyone and probably remember them all perfectly. 
Um, off the top of my head, I do remember one. I can't remember what the hell it was. It was it was an absolute clusterfuck, and everything went wrong. Um, it was we power dropped into the water and like assaulted a small island. I know I was I was with Ben. Um, just like a couple of squads, I think. I can't quite remember, yeah, but. No, I think we dropped in the water, um, and then at the end, the bloody siren starts going off. I th- think it all, I think it just blew up. <laughs> sounds about right. That sounds that, like it was quite a while ago, like maybe around Pavis time. Uh, maybe. Yeah, it was that like desert map. Um, the map went with the the dodgy bridge yeah yeah yeah. I'm with it it's Pavis yeah no that does sound like a clusterfuck but most most good missions uh, most good missions are Um, but yeah you've done uh, 115 deployments Jesus in um, every two years quite a lot yeah, I think it's just because I'm, I'm regular, I think. Only 36 of them are made, Jesus. Well, in the same team. Uh, in the same team with, the, with each other. I've done well avoiding these Squid You've only yeah, got felt like two more. more times at Squid and you'll spend more time with Squid than Ben. Wow. I did say Pavis, yeah. One of my favourite campaigns, I think, was probably Pavis. Um, there's been some really interesting missions. Probably my favourite was the Pavis one where Wilson gets sh- shot down I think he was in an A-10 and if you remember we, oh, there, was yes. a, there was that crate on the hill and it was like a biochemical factory and we had to go up there and you know disarm it or whatever and then because when the squad that was tasked with that got there there was like loads of CRBN kit and there was alarms going off and like gas going everywhere and then they started to put gas masks on they went in there and then when we came down the hill, I think it was like a tank or something shooting at our vehicles, and then uh, Frogfoot starts trying to. T- there's like a dogfight going on above our head, and Wilson, who is like a uh, one of our long-standing fixed-wing pilots, is trying to dodge this Frogfoot, uh, whatever it was, and gets shot down. Of course, everyone in the infantry is trying to avoid getting killed, but at the same time, he's mesmerised by this dogfight going on uh, above them. Um, and I think two missions after that, I got captured whilst platoon leading, uh, which was quite <laughs> memorable because <laughs> uh, I was trying to stay in a position where I could hear both squads, and then I just got walked up on by a sentry and got captured, which was. I remember that. I remember coming and saving you. I think one of the. I don't. I don't think. I think it kind of spans quite a few missions, but. One of the things that always sticks in my mind is is, is whenever we use the M113s and they catapult themselves across the map, or well, it's course, straight into our lines. Of course, Op Ridgeback was the shortest lived campaign, I think. And other than it just having loads of hills, the biggest problem of Ridgeback was it provided so many clips for those montage videos of vehicles flipping because I think it's just like something to do with the way the roads were made and we did that convoy op where like every 200 metres a truck would just go <laughs> flying into the sky and it just became so normal that everyone was just like not even surprised when it happened but I'm a, I'm a big re- fan of M13s 
yeah, you just we just need a, a mod that adds one that has some weight to it. I think they're just so nimble, and uh, we used them a couple of weeks back on on Brimstone, and um, the map we use now for Aisha we did use for Diffidentia, Operation Diffidentia, which is a campaign Riot made. And if you remember, we used Devon Freeze quite extensively on on that campaign. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, mean, I have fond memories of that campaign. It's, it was a good, it was good fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but camp campaign wise, I mean, we've uh, why not have a quick talk through? So I mean, like obviously we started with Torrent, which is now on the same same map we're on now with Brimstone. But that was um, very similar. But of course, because it's been two years, you know, most people don't remember it, but. I think we did about 30 torrents before we moved on to Hammer, but uh, Brimstone, we're, I think we're on the 50th Brimstone now, which we started in, in January. 41st. We've, uh, say again, Zuka. 41st. 41st, there you go. I don't really know new, new Roman numerals that well. <laughs> um, uh, then we did Hammer, which is like a Russian campaign, Bridgeback, which I mentioned, which you know, we had two acts in the end. Uh, Diffidentia was on the same map as Aisha now, and that was a really good campaign. Um, Pavis, of course, bring back Pavis, which is in East Africa. And uh, no, World War Two. In fact, I think one of my favourite missions was the World War Two mission where it was it Matt and Trifle that were role playing those two Germans. Oh we all God. sat in the barn. Yes, that was so good. So we're all sat in this barn, and it's pitch black, and we've power dropped into. You know, enemy territory. Quick spoiler alert: There's a World War Two op coming up. Not the same as this. It's a little bit different, but similar. Um, very similar. And we're um, in this barn, and there's these two Germans outside, like patrolling, and they're just doing some really um, questionable role plays, should we say, uh, about whether they're going to come in this barn and um, enjoy wanting eat each other's company, should we say? And uh, we're just sat like two foot away, uh, and everyone's trying not to laugh. Uh, at the same time, but uh, it's just little things like that that makes makes emissions make, and make them really memorable. I, I don't think yeah. I'll ever get enough of just shit accents and roleplay. I just think it's amazing. <laughs> like Shark House's screaming woman was just fucking beautiful. It I love that. Scottish. Uh, <laughs> oh, what was it? So was that World War Two? British Scottish squad leading, I think it was. Uh, we were all role playing like British, uh, Old English, and uh, Scottish. Uh, yeah, there's definitely been some some good role play. Um, and I wasn't even there, but that that clip of Matt and uh, Farid, his uh, wife from uh, Herrick. Um, I wasn't even there, but the amount of times I've watched that clip, um, absolutely outstanding. Yeah, that was great with Skilly. Fun fun fact and not spoiler, but fun behind the scenes fact the, the whole reason why that scene played out that way is because we couldn't figure out how to shut the fucking music off so Matt just uh, just winged it and just role played that he couldn't hear Skelly telling him to tell him his <laughs> were you Farid then? or Farid then? Uh, no, I, yeah I was his wife Yeah. ah ok I didn't know that there you go learn something there every day yeah, that that whole scene was was not. It was supposed to be that we'd just roll up. He would tell us to turn the music down, and we'd turn the music down. But we couldn't turn it down, so we just role played it. Yeah, I love that scene. It's great. It's scary trying to keep his cool. Definitely. And then, of course, after World War Two started, we had Ember, which was on uh, Tanoa. She spent quite a bit of time on 
a little bit of a controversial campaign. Not everyone's a fan of uh, Tanoa, but uh, definitely some unique terrain. Herrick, of course, uh, on the Isbin Valley Vertex, which we did on Churnerus, didn't we? Uh, but I think it was the version. It had like new areas in it, which it wasn't quite finished. Um, and then obviously Dare Storm, Parable, Panther, Brimstone, which are on now, Aisha, Typhoon, and uh, some more that are coming soon, shall we say. Yeah, the Vietnam ones have been quite fun as well, like the, the previous ones um, have been quite fun. People usually getting, getting good uh, characters for, for those as well. Definitely. So what would you say, it'd be interesting actually to to hear from Squiddo, um, and I know it's obviously that, that Squiddo is, is someone who, like we said before, hasn't been involved uh, so much in the in the actual sort of creation and progression, if you like, of UNITAF. Like, what, what what would you say that you've learned, Squiddo, over the past two years being being in UNITAF? And Nothing. Nothing at all. And, and sort of seeing it grow as it has and, and playing and, and, yeah, what have you? He's already answered. <laughs> He's yeah, like, I can't. That can't be. I'm answer. pretty. I'm pretty stubborn. No, no, it's not. Um, yeah, look, I'm. I'm probably like a way better player than I used to be. Just in terms of like, I'm pretty shit at communication and, um, yeah, as you can tell from this answer, kind of meandering, but. Yeah, no, I'm a lot better at that sort of stuff than I used to be. Um... I guess another question I've got, which um, again carries on from what Zero said, which is like, there's only a handful of people. Like, um, the the two year service medal that went out the other day, I said to Zero, let's get someone on. Like, say you're, you're on that list. He's not really that involved in the sort of administration side of UNITAF, but it's been here a long time. Like, when we started, um, we're going to talk a lot more about this in a bit, but one of the, the things we'll talk about is like the first year of UNITAF was very easy, right? Because we had loads of great ideas and it was just a case of implementing them. But as UNITAF got bigger and bigger, right, there's this like upkeep that's required of the organization, which means we can't always work on new things. We have to work on like improving old systems. And um, another example of that is like you're, you're not going to be in the same squad. Um, you know, when we were much smaller, so like in the first six months, like there was only like 14, 30 of us, right? So we're always in the same sort of teams, whereas now you're probably playing with people that you've only just met, mixed in with people that you've known for a long time. So like, how do you find that over a long period of time? Do you find it easy to get on with people? Do you find it harder to play when you don't know you're going to play with? Do you, and do you find like the quality of players to to vary because obviously I, I believe it will because you're going to have people with lots of different backgrounds of experience but how has that sort of looked over over the last two years yeah I mean I did have quite a long period of time where I'd be doing almost entirely squad medic and that kind of changes things because you're only sort of playing with like one other person almost um, and like the rest of it is like floating between everyone so you know I did quite a lot of that with mostly people that I kind of knew fairly well. Um, 
but yeah, honestly, I found like the quality of our recruits to be pretty damn high. I don't know whether that's just because you know Armour's such a mature game, and you know most people have been playing it for ages, or because you know we got our shit together with the FTXs and all the induction stuff that people pretty much know what's going on by the time that they get in because um, it's, it's obvious when they don't isn't it really um, but I find it fine really um, like this um, mission that I had with uh, Zero on Sunday we had uh, Weevil on the team and he was, he was great so you know do you, do you think it helps playing with people that you perhaps haven't played with before or that you don't know very well do you think it helps yeah knowing keeps things fresh but do you, like, do you think it helps knowing what your role is? Like, if you know what your role is in the team, then it doesn't really matter what anyone else is doing, in a way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just, I think that's what I enjoy about it, because you always know what you're going to be doing. You know what's expected of you, um, either from just the experience of doing that role all the time or from the FDXs. So... Yeah, that takes quite a lot of any sort of anxiety. Well, not anxiety, but makes things run so much smoother when everyone knows what's expected of them. I suppose the other thing is the out-of-game bit as well, which is like going back to that same thing. I mean, I see Ryla Flubber also listening live. I mean, these are people that have been here for yonks. Um how have like changes like because the fatigue system didn't even exist when we did tough catch four, four you know six weeks ago um things like the fatigue system the tier system never used to exist if you remember way back um early early days we didn't have the unitab mods we didn't have automatic loadouts um we did we had this uh like uh qualification system i don't know if you remember it um and a lot of the changes we've made over two years have been I guess not really aimed at the old guard if you want to put it that way um, those of you that have been here for, for forever, like a lot of it's about how do we make it you know, more welcoming and more sensible for new people that are, that are newer um, how, how have you found those sort of changes over a long period of the time? Yeah, to be honest it kind of blows me away the amount of work that various people put into it all because yeah, it's crazy, and like the the pace of change has been, well, I don't know it's like people get paid for this, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, some of the st- some of the stuff's been great. Like the, especially I think one of the big ones was you know the, getting loadout sorted because that used to suck up a huge amount of time. I mean, it still does sometimes, but yeah, that makes such a difference at the start of missions. How do, how do we even used to do that? I can't remember. I think you just used to like slot it out yourself, didn't you? In the Arsenal. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we just had an Arsenal that had all the stuff that you would need for whatever role was in your team, and you'd just have to get it all out. And it, yeah, it used to take a very long time. Oh, how old school? There you go. I mean, uh, I suppose the the orientation of the question. Um, do you feel like we've given enough attention to the uh, to the people that have been here, like you know, for uh, t- for two years? And like I say, Ryan, that's another example. Flubber, the same. Um, or people that have been here really long, but you know, uh, a lot of the changes I feel that we do are are 
more addressing the growth of UNITAF. Um, is there anything that you would like to see uh, done, a feature, or I don't know? Oh, really? Because I feel like bringing you know working on the stuff for the new people that brings more people in and people who are keen and that sort of you know keeps people have been here for a while keeps things fresh keeps keeps you interested because things are always changing so i think it really is for everyone really i think even if a change is primarily aimed at, at newer people it still affects those who have been around for a long time and, and like squirrel says it sort of changes things up a bit and it keeps it fresh and if it's a positive change which I hope most of them are then um, then yeah it sort of reinforces the reason why they're still here and, and keep, ensures that they continue to enjoy it Definitely. I was just looking at the ratio between my practice hours and uh, op hours is that why you're still a PFC? I mean that's an interesting point though Squido because like you said that you're a much better player now than you were like two years ago. Yeah. So do do you think that you do you think that you learn more from actually playing than you would say going to an FTX or reading an SOP? All of the FTXs I've been to have been really pretty good, I would say. Um, I think I'm still sort of stuck in the mindset of like once you've learned something, you just go right. I've learned that. But yeah, you, you do forget. I mean, and SOP changes, you know, like I imagine like the medical FDXs are probably different from when I originally did it. And yeah, I, I do find some like the, the people who are medicing now do things in a slightly different way than I do it. And I think oh, maybe I should uh, do another FDX just to sort of brush up on things and. Do you feel it's a it's a good point though because I, I think you know, statistically if you look at there was a time like three months ago where like a new, somebody who joined recently would have racked up the number of practice hours we've got over two years within like two weeks, um, but mainly because there didn't used to be a lot of FTXs because that that was a relatively new thing and you know? it was probably introduced three months six months into Intaf and like you say the attitude back then was very much once you know it you know you know it but obviously that's not really Unitaf's. Uh, philosophy. Do you think that it's a fair assessment of your ability, or do you think there should be other system um, that can be applied to you to say, well, even though you've only done this many practice hours, do you think there should be other other systems available? Um, I think because mostly, like the FDXs I've done, are sort of involved in medical, and because I've got so many op hours, I think I've sort of got it down for the actual practical side of it i think probably what i would need to improve is in the um communicating um the status of you know everyone who's down to you know the squad lead or whatever um that's probably where i'm weakest you know with the immediate delayed blah 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 yeah there maybe is, I mean, it's a bit off topic, there maybe is some scope to revisit the medical system at some point. It was last reviewed about 12 months ago. But, um, 
I don't think it needs to be made. I think I think I, I never look at the medical system as a like mechanic. It's more of um, is it an adequate punishment for the mistake you made? Um, and I think it's more than enough of a punishment at the moment. So the real question is, if you made a change to it, would it would it just make it more interesting for the medic or uh, so on and so forth? I don't think people should be unconscious for any uh, longer than they currently are. But there may be you see all these advanced medical mods and stuff. There may be some more inventive ways to treat people that uh, either speed up in in hospital scenarios or whatever it may be. So maybe we will look at that, and that will. You know, obviously, change the mechanic somewhat, so you would would necessarily have to relearn a few things. I was um I was looking at some old screenshots uh, the other day and uh, noticed the old um thirst and hunger uh used <laughs> to have. That was something I don't particularly miss, especially the people who would you know go unconscious because they were too thirsty, and then you couldn't really do anything about it. So a couple of a couple of major changes are um so we used to as as Greg said, we used to have the ASEX rations on. There was a mission on Torrent once where we were all one of the squads was sat on a rock formation waiting for the cavalry team to come back up the road. And from the cavalry team's perspective, the infantry started dropping on the floor and going into an unconscious nation. Dehydrated <laughs> and run out of water. Um we didn't know it at the time, but no medical way of getting someone out of dehydration which is why we no longer use the system because uh, you know you should be able to give them some sort of a injector to rehydrate them and then bring them back up again um, but one of the biggest things of that was it stopped people from taking 30 mags as I think it is Sean, Sean said in general the other day he's like oh, I carry 30 mags or whatever it was um, it just packed their, their backpack with some extra essentials that sort of forced them to about their load carry a bit more but you know it didn't interact with the medical system which made it sort of completely pointless but uh, nevertheless quite amusing yeah I, I, I do, it, I do miss the um, the swapping or stealing people's um, you know curry out of their backpack their MREs yes swapping yeah. pasta for their beef curry or whatever <laughs> yeah. uh, I do think it's uh, it's it's like a really what that that particular system and the removal of it is a is, a, is um, one of those examples of realism where it matters because it just didn't matter. Like it was just, it was silly. And it was such a harsh system as well. Like it was probably what every twenty minutes you needed to take a full canteen of water. It's, it was just so unrealistic. It didn't. Uh, it didn't it, think. But it's kind of amusing thinking about it now that you know, a lot of the time now you stop for a log pack or for an ace check or you go for five minutes. And back then we were stopping to have a, a quick bite to eat and a drink. You know. Um, Imagine what our yeah. log packs would be like now. Like, yeah, I need thirty bottles of water as well, please. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, other things that we've removed. I think like um, there used to be um, GPS never used to be distributed to anyone other than leadership as well, which was um, if you remember, I think um, I can't remember whereabouts in Torrent we changed it, but you know, orientating yourself and situational awareness was, was very different as well. And equally, I don't even think we had C Tab either back then. Uh, we have got used to a lot of of these tools, especially as and a lot of this is, you know, two years ago most operations were squad or platoon size. You know, now most operations are platoon or company size, and it is a little bit different um, the way we the way we have to approach things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, got to use the right tools for the right job. 
you know, some people might say, oh, if everybody's got a GPS, it's, you know, it's too easy to see what's going on. And if too many people have a C-tab again, it's like, it's a bit easy to sort of, you know, track people and, and all that sort of stuff. But you know, if, if it's realistic and it helps us and it's available to us, then, then we should use it just like you would, you know, a weapon system. Absolutely. I don't think anybody would be, you know, look at an A-10 in the sky, blowing the holy shit out of something and be like, mm, yeah, but it's a bit effective, isn't it? I always welcome when an A-10 comes over. On yeah, the Vertex, we use them frequently. They were enjoyable to watch and, and listen to mostly when it comes through. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, as an infantryman, I'm always happy when some sort of cavalry whether it's air or ground or you know some sort of fire support comes down it's uh, always a welcome sign it sounds so good it does yeah so uh, james i'll pose that question to you like what what do you think what do you think you've learned over the past two years from uh from the from you know unicef back then to what it is now i mean i know it's a lot but what are some of the sort of highlights do you think uh what have we learned um I, th I think um, I think you're quite right. You know, when, when the first year, the first year, we've achieved a lot of what we set out to do. That's the first thing. And like I said, we'll try and limit the pattern on the back because I think there is a, an element of getting complacent that I, d I really don't want any of us um, at UNITAF. What I say to the COC, you know, we we shouldn't be getting complacent. Um, I'd much rather consider UNITAF an underdog to the wider community than um, than, than anything else. Um, but I think what we have done well is, and then we'll talk about it a bit in a bit with roadmaps, is set good long-term expectations of what we're trying to achieve and rallied people towards that. Um, I think one of the hardest things to do in this community is get enough people together to make something happen. And like you say, our first mission had like 14 people on it. That's, that's only because we knew people and, and we were able to express what our aim was, what our goal was for UNITAF. Um, got there and then over the wider period of time we've been able to spread that and each successive year say well you know we've achieved that and here's what what we're going to try and do over the next 12 months and in terms of learnings th things are obviously always a lot harder than they may see um i think zero said it in the opening you know it's taken a lot of work to get to where we are today from a lot of people some of which are still here some aren't here um and it's going to take a lot more people to to get through the next two years and so on. Um, and I think the the biggest lesson right now is yeah, I go back to that sort of complacency thing. We we are never going to know it all. We've learned, you know, nine thousand after action reports gives you a pretty good idea of what makes a good mission. We still have missions which are not good statistically. Um, and so what we have to be able to do is we have to be able to look at that. And even though we know what the right thing to do is to make sure we're applying it, uh, we've got a lot of intelligent people and we've learned a lot. That's in-game, out-of-game, people skills, leadership, um, whatever it may be. What all that's worked well, what all that's done. But you have to apply that every time, coupled with the challenge that we always have new people coming in. So we have to be able to teach those the things that we've learned as well. And so I think the biggest thing we've learned is just, you know, a lot of our effort has to be put now on how do we maintain our current position um, as much as we are looking to the future and trying to do new things. Um, maintaining this 
size of organization and to the to the level of quality that we want um it's going to be a big challenge as much as you know advancing into the whatever it may be that we'll share today and that we plan to do over the next two years or a year or whatever it may be um it every every week is a is a learning experience as i'm sure you know as well as you. <laughs> yeah absolutely Congratulations so, I mean, on MVP you, you, for uh, Sunday, by the way. News just in. Ah, did I get it? Ah, uh, thank you. Well, um, that's that's what happens when you when you fire team lead. No, no one ever gives a squad leader MVP. That's it. No, it, was, it was a good mission. I really enjoyed it. I mean, that's I a perfect example. Could have had it then. Uh, uh, you know, two years ago, uh, what will our you can go back and look at it. Obviously, public information. A good mission was like a seven point five, seven point seven, you know, scoring. You know, that the Sunday's mission rated at eight, eight point three. Um, if a mission gets under sort of an eight point seven, we usually fall committee to <laughs> have a look and see see what went wrong. You know, we we have high expectations, and that's a great example of a mission that's quite polarizing. So you've got one call sign that's really having a great time, and they rate it really highly. And you've got time. Um, that don't and have a completely different experience and you know the reality is we know and we probably could have foreseen that because uh, we've done 400 operations but you have to consistently apply these lessons um, all the time and like a, it's almost like a flip-flop thing because you do one week and you go oh we should have had cavalry and then the next week oh we shouldn't have had cavalry and it's it's constant uh, learning new things trying to come up with rules and ways to predict things and so on and so forth and that's probably the biggest thing I've learned and one of the things that hopefully is not- noticeable about UNITAF is that when we know something to be true and that we learn it we get it written down and we try and educate people on that thing uh, which is why we've got a lot of procedures and a lot of um, I don't know uh, principles that we, we try and follow um, but at the same time when we, we find something no longer to be effective like MREs for example or no longer enjoyable that we change our approach to that thing uh, and so long as we keep doing that I think um, you know we'll be just fine yeah absolutely that that would be one of the biggest things that I've picked up in in this past two years is that when you engage in in a project like like UNITAF is, is to is to never think that you know exactly what you're doing and exactly what's going to be around the corner because you you just can't foresee what's going to happen until you start actually doing things and then something that you n- never even considered comes up out of the blue and, and you have to c- try and you know figure out a way of, of dealing with it and trying to put a system in place to make sense for the most amount of people um i think that yeah that, that sort of that happens in game and out of game um yeah uh, so i mean you mentioned um you know like looking looking to the future so I mean, let's, let's sort of move on to onto that. Like, let's maybe talk about what you think. Um, what, not necessarily what the future looks like, but maybe some of the you know the more challenging aspects of um, growing and managing UNITAF as it is now in 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 the months and, and years to come. Yeah, um, I think in, you know we've just started this off the back of BI's twenty year. Um, live stream you know uh, I think when we all started Unitap we probably thought 
that new game was relatively close, bearing in mind when we started unit half. We were seven, half, eight years into Armour 3's release. So it was probably a pretty much a done deal at that point. Um, one of the things we've learned, I think, is that that process is probably going to take a lot, lot longer than we anticipated. Um, that's going to be a challenge, you know. According to Steam's data, you know, Armour 3 is not flailing in activity. It, it's consistent, and if there's one thing I know about everyone that's in Unitaf and that I've known over a long time, like like Storm, like you, Squiddo, um, Kevin. So we always come back to it, even if we take breaks from it. And that, that there's also a lot of people I know uh, that don't play armor at the moment. Otherwise, they probably would be in Unitaf, um, who are just wait, just waiting for something fresh, something new. Um, and I, I completely understand that. And, and we will address that when we talk about the future roadmap in, in a moment. So I do think that's a big challenge. But at the same time, there will be other games that I think sit in this genre that will suit Unitaf. One of the things you'll see in the roadmap, and that is, you know, definitely part of Unitas plans, is that, uh, you know, Unitas might not always be about just armor, um, but we might we're always going to be about this this genre and what we do and how we operate. But it might not just be that game that um, that is a focus of what what we're doing and, and our main operations. It depends what comes along. So I think I think BI probably have the same the same concern to be honest i think that's why they um you know over the past however long it's been have been sort of consistently bringing out dlcs that add something new to it because they they want to keep they want to keep the levels of interest in armor at what they are and if they don't bring out something new you know like the new vietnam mod for example in the the uh, cold war one previously they don't bring those things out people will find other games to play because there are you know quite a few few games in this genre that perhaps don't do things quite as extensively or, or as in-depth as armor but you know get pretty close yeah absolutely and i i you say what what are the challenges i say that's a for long-term attention for some like you know for every violet and storm and uh squiddo that there is um there's somebody that joined us early on that's not it may be because of that and that they've just played too much of that game um you know there's i have a slightly more longer term what we um we are uh, i guess the reason we like this genre and this era is because we grew up uh, most of us grew up and or experienced this era but you know the next generation probably won't be that interested in what the next generation wants you know is going to influence what game developers make but i'm absolutely certain that you know, genre aside and era aside, what we're here to do, this sort of large to, uh, large scale operation and, and uh, scale of, of military operations will will stay. I'm just not certain it will be in the armor series. Uh, they take too much longer to do so. I'm pretty confident that somebody else is going to come along with something better, uh, which is fine. You know, one of the things that we'll talk about and that we're planning uh, is for that. Um, and that, that, if anything, will be will be good for Unitaf. But I see that as a challenge because you know ultimately we want new and fresh things, and there's only so much we can. Do. We're not building the game; we're just building on top of it. So there's a limit to to what we can do uh, with the game engine. 
and you know you've seen the integrations we've achieved with Armour 3 well you can only sort of imagine what we'd probably be able to do with a much larger game with a bigger scope and that sort of where the excitement lies um, but the, the other half of the challenge and you said it there which is the and I maybe alluded to it before which is I think the hardest thing with Unitaf is the larger it gets the more work is required to keep the machine fed so we we're lucky in that we designed a relatively efficient we've got a great group of people to to administrate Unitaf and it doesn't take a lot of time certainly from the top of my time to you know to make it work and it's quite efficient and well oiled in that way but the bigger Unitaf gets and Zero will know this as we're always fighting fires. We're always dealing with stuff that you know other people won't be aware that's going on. Um, that's just the day-to-day -day requirement of, of having an organisation of this size. It's a cost. It's a price to to being able to do what we do um, operationally. Um, and so the bigger Unitaf gets and the older it gets, the more of that there will be. Um, and so that's a challenge, you know, and that's something that we have to. We we've been quite in automating a lot of things um, and so that that's not been a massive problem for us um, you know if we didn't have all the systems we had we probably wouldn't still be here you know it'd be much harder to, to operate at our size but um, it's a challenge because you know it, every day that goes past you know over if you look after the last three months you had to deal with as administrators as uh, community managers if you like it, being able to balance that with new features and quality of life stuff is always very difficult. So I, I'd say the two biggest challenges, the game itself, you know, and I've always said the biggest threat to Unitaf would be a new game. But ironically, it's probably always the, it's probably also the biggest opportunity as well. Um, and, and just the, the size of the organization, especially because with a new game, we would probably aim to to increase the size of Unitaf. Um, because a new game is almost certainly going to allow us to do things on a much bigger scale, uh, which is ultimately the goal of of Unita. Do you think there are any any challenges that we face at the moment, like any, anything that you'd say is uh, something that we're working through currently? Uh, yeah, so I mean, at the moment, like, we have a lot of skills, like we've got a lot of people with the good skills. Our biggest skill shortage is, is in the game, so like, scripting. <laughs> no, sorry, I didn't mean that. Scripting went straight. Um, scripting, you know, and, and our mods and stuff. That's our biggest uh, skill, skill shortage. Uh, it's something I know very little about. Um, and so that's our, our sort of biggest short-term challenge. Um, but I think they crop up all the time. I mean, think, take the fatigue system, right? The fatigue system was never on a roadmap where it was never thought about, never planned. Um, and, you know, in January, February, March, we had this problem where, like, everyone that joined that was new, they just they just couldn't get slots. Um, and so we had to go back to the drawing board. We had to go, right, how do we make this work? And, you know, the fatigue system was born. So some challenges crop up and we have to immediately address them uh, which takes our time away from you know other systems so i don't think there's any immediate threat 
or challenge that we're facing than maybe just uh, summer. Uh, you know, summer's going to have an impact on what we're doing in our operations, and we have to manage through that. And um, you know, like I say, we we've, we've spent eighteen months in winter plus a global pandemic, so we've had the luxury of having a lot of people's time. Um, and it's actually on the flip side, and we talked about this, or me and Zero in our capacity as staff privately talked about this. Actually, Unitaf provided quite a useful service to a lot of people you know, who weren't able to leave the house, who couldn't go out and meet people and stuff. So, you know, I'm quite proud in, in essence that we've been able to provide a continual environment for people to, to do things. But I suppose this time now, you know, where the sun's out, restriction, people do want to go out and actually do things. So to flip that kind of on its head, and I know we, we touched, touched on it a little bit uh, in terms of, um, you know, like a, a new game being both a challenge and an opportunity, which, do you think uh, what other opportunities there are um, for, for UNICEF to, you know, to maybe uh, branch out into or, or try new things or whatever it might be? Yeah, so shortly um, in the chat, for, for those listening live, we'll share some some of the draft roadmap for, for, for next year for the next 12 months but um, I think we will start to relax our attitude towards other games a fair bit um, it's important from our well, from my perspective that Unitaf has a primary focus uh, which is armour um, that won't always be the case because I don't believe that well let's just phrase that differently the focus is armour 3 uh, but it's not going to be Armour 3 forever. It's either going to be Armour 4 or it's going to be something else. Maybe that what happens over the next five years, in 12 months, another completely unknown developer comes out with something that's meant to compete with Armour. And, you know, we all think that's amazing. That works um, great for what we're doing. You know, maybe it's got procedural map generation and we can have 500 people on a server and we can do these amazing persistent missions. We'd be stupid not to explore that. And in that environment, you could probably see Unitaf's op center with different games on it. So, you know, when you're browsing, it says, you know, this one's on Armour 3 and this one's on Unnamed Game here, for example. Um, so that's a potential future option or opportunity. Um, and the other one is, you know, Armour 4 itself, if it materializes. Um, you know, you're probably going to see a, a long crossover period where we continue to do Armour 3 operations but at the same time starting to spool up our Armour 4 operations and you know, that's a great thing about our system is it actually allows to do that You know, we don't actually have to have a cut off date where everyone moves or has to buy it at the same time we can actually do both So, um, we, I think we've even spoke about this on previous podcasts personally I'd like to see just bigger maps um, you know 10 years has passed really since you know armor 3 and the reason why we try and cap unitaf at its current size is you know we can't realistically you know we can get 120 players in a server at a push it's just not a very enjoyable experience nor is it a very performant one so most of our all batch you know, are limited to sort of 70 and those of you that go to the bigger ones or whoever went to the to the 120 man up we did know about how exponentially worse performance gets uh, in these operations. I'd just like to see an op, um, a system that's, you know, 
maybe procedural map generation, maybe just bigger maps, you know, 300 kilometers, you know, 3,000 kilometers instead of 300, whatever it may be, maybe some persistency. Um, I, I just see it as what we do now with better graphics, better physics, and on a much larger scale, which I think just lends itself very well to what we do. And part of our sort of design philosophy now is just um, preparing for that, right? So when we design stuff, not just thinking about Armour 3, but thinking about the future. Um, and, and yeah, I'd love to see something like that. I think, you know, 500 players working in like a a much larger scale, I mean, almost like a war game um, scale. Maybe it's more persistent than what we do now. Um, and I think we're well set up for something like that. And I think it would be, you know, interesting. Yeah, I think it would be it'd be really cool to see a game, whether it was armor or otherwise, that that uh, increased the scale of combined arms warfare. You know, to have some, you know, some like proper water assets or you know a, a skybox that was you know big enough to so that so in, in essence there are you know two or three missions going on at the same time that are completely separated from each other by the nature of what. You know the assets that they have, but are still on the same server, playing in the same in the same arena, would be really fun. Because armor tries, yeah. right? But it's it's not it's not great, right? Like you you can have a bit of a dogfight, but it's not really set up for for proper um, air assets. Yeah, and I think I think also to some extent the game now is yeah, obviously it's dated. I mean, you can tell that when you play it. Um, but I think with the just with a newer engine and with with just a new approach to it, like you'd feel much more threatened as a as a as a lone you know flesh built soldier you know getting shot at. I, I I think either we've got too used to the game or it, it doesn't do a very good job of making you feel threatened. And I think I think a lot would be said about the experience by just having something new. I mean that's uh, more immersive from a from a first person perspective. Uh, but also from a scale perspective, you know, we've all, um, it still amazes me sometimes, you know, when you've got, you've got, you know, aircraft flying over, Sunday coming sort of be a good example, uh, because it's, it's kind of um, airfield, and you know, these things where you've got these sort of bombing campaigns going on at the same time, in tanks, you know, this is what it's all about, um, and armour gives you that variety of the small scale right up to the large, you know, think about it on a much bigger scale than that, again, um, and and I think that's really where the armor is about, like the cooperation and and the create the fact that we create everything in the sandbox. You know, otherwise you just play Battlefield, wouldn't you? And respawn every time you got bored, type of thing. I think that's one of the big things that I'm looking forward to with like the next generation of this sort of game is the. If you've ever tried to make an asset for armor or like a mod, fucking hell. <laughs> Some of the like mod tools are pretty archaic. Yeah, I think that and that sort of barrier to entry, I, I think it really holds a lot of people back. Yeah, definitely. I think yeah, BI could really do with. I mean, they they have done a lot from Armor Two to Armor Three. It's got a lot better, but uh, yeah, it would be nice to see them focus more on the fact that uh, it's the community, it's the modding community for Armor that makes Armor as successful as it is, and to give them more tools that are easier to use to to actually you know take take the next version of Armor to to whatever level it can. Yeah, 
Yeah, and absolutely brilliant for us as well. We're such a small part. I mean, cooperative Milsim, if you like, is such a small percentage of Armour's actual global player base. It's quite incredible. Like, we are in the minority. Uh, And then we're only a small part of that part. Um, And even just watching their stream today, now, BIS's approach is is more general to the game. You know, they're not going to add Ace... As a, as a standalone feature, they're not going to necessarily add Radiant, you know, because they are trying to appeal to a King of the Hill, to Altus Life, to whatever it may be. You know, they they don't have a specific um, direction of the game that they want to push it in. They want to keep it as general as possible. And if anything, what they say, make it simpler for, for other people to to get into. So, the, as Zero says, the reliance on the community, the modding community, to extend that experience is huge. And I can only go back to when we switched from Armour 2 to Armour 3. That takes time. You know, Armour 3 wasn't really playable to the same level that, you know, we play now, if you like, for at least, what, eight months, maybe? Yeah, I had a big break from Armour after Armour 3 came out. Yeah, me too. But yeah, I'm 100% confident that's the future. It'll be scale, probably persistency, possibly some procedural generation. I just don't know when when that will be. And where possible, we'll try to to develop Unitaph in that direction so that, you know, when that time comes where, you know, the technology says, actually, you can have 500 people on the same server at the same time. You know, we're in a position to actually work towards that. Um, probably much better, you know, much more easily than other people. Uh, but until that time, you know, we'll maintain a similar scale to it, to what we have now, because that's, you know, that's all we're able to do, you know. We've reached the, I think, the, te- the technological limit of what this game can do outside of PvP. I mean, PvP is the only real other option for, for more players. Um, and, and, you know, generally, higher... Pop, uh, population ops have rated lower than lower population ops. Like statistically, in Unitaf, the squad of the platoon size ops do always rate better. Now that can be for two reasons. It could be that in Sunday's example, that it's harder to track. You know, lots of people. The more players you have, the more kind of got to track them and make sure they're getting an equal experience. But more often than not, I find it's due to <laughs> we have to, RGMs do a great job of like trying to make the game work you know we can't have loads of enemy like a realistic amount of enemy because not up to the task you know um it's not very well optimized and we're using so many mods and things like that um if that limit was lifted you know and we could have thousands and thousands of units deployed i think it would be a completely different experience you know and uh, then i believe that a large scale op you know of hundreds of people would be an enjoyable and a, a well-performant experience, whereas at the moment that's just not possible. So given the restraints that we currently find ourselves uh, with uh, in Armour 3, should we talk a bit about the roadmap then, as we see it currently? Um, Let's do it. Um, I've got a link which I'll put in the... Um in the chat for those listening live if you're listening on the podcast we will endeavour to put it in the description of the podcast but I'm sure if it's not there someone will let us know 
so this isn't necessarily confirmed because a few processes we've got to go through so a lot of this is still being discussed and we'll see we we'll have a, a big sort of say on this but as it stands right now this is uh, this is our review we've actually um, the 2021 roadmap roadmap you can see now on um, and you can go there now it's um, the way to find it. it's on the contribution menu and then roadmap a lot of stuff on that roadmap is like stuff that's either been done or is no longer you know of any interest to us um, and a good example of that is like the fatigue system right so it was never on the roadmap um, one of the stalwarts of the roadmap has been like the center and we're we're always it's always gets pushed back and pushed back and I think that's because as Zero sort of said before, like the longer UNITAF or, or every day you know exists for every day that goes beyond, you know, things crop up that we never expected to ever have to bother doing or make systems for that become really important. So, you know, three months ago that was the fatigue system and you know, before we even knew it was the fatigue system. And you know, this month it's probably gonna be different again. Um, so what this uh, this isn't really a roadmap I suppose what I've put in the chat here to help everyone that's looking at it is this is more of a uh, a Venn diagram of um, things that we want to achieve over the next 12 months uh, but these are organized into areas and I'll explain the thinking behind that when this is finalized which it will be by the next sit rep which falls in like the next few weeks um, will be in like a more roadmappy format so like you know what's next what's after that so on and so forth at the moment the roadmap's in a bit bit of a different format if you go on the website it's like a this then that then this um, so if you look at this this is the sort of strategy right so what we've historically done in the past is always done the yellow bit so new features so we've always been focused on what can we do next what's new and to some extent as well we we focus a lot on the out of game stuff and not a lot on the in-game stuff which i'll come back to because i think there is a bit we can be doing in game that's you know not related to the out of game stuff um the so that's new features so that's in yellow and then blue stuff is about sort of what we talked about which is future briefing which is so how do we make sure you know we've made two years how do we make sure you can tap the next two that's kind of what we would refer to as future proofing. How are we going to bulletproof the the, the organisation and its activities? And the the red stuff or quality of life is kind of what I talked about before. Over time, you know, things crop up. Old systems need replacing. You know, we need to do things to make the experience better. And sometimes that can be in game. Sometimes that can be out of game. Quality of life to me is um, anything we can do to make the people that make UNITAF tick uh, how, how we can make them do that faster, automate it whatever it may be, sometimes that's as simple as automate the application process or having loadouts that load themselves or whatever it may be um, so that's kind of how that's laid out if that makes want to talk through a few is that the next yeah go for it yeah <laughs> cherry, 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 cherry pick a few few things yeah so the, the bold ones on here you see that some bolder three of them are bolded so they're probably 
what we would expect to see as immediate priorities of the roadmap, right? So um, you'll see it in the vehicles on all bats in, in between quality of life and new features. That's obviously part of the campaign center. If you go to the campaign center now, you know, we've always referred to it on the roadmap as the campaign center. And I think recently we've uh, we've got to change our approach to the campaign center. Um, the campaign center is is so much more than just one, you know, two words, and it's lots of different systems. So what we're going to have to do on the future roadmaps is break it down. And one of the things that you know the campaign center is meant to do is do logistics and assets and stuff. So you'll see on this diagram that there's a lot of elements of the campaign center that are set, separated, and they will be on the on the roadmap as well. So rather than just say when's the campaign center ready. We're going to break it down into modules and focus on those modules, prioritize those modules. So vehicles on all bats, we talked about it before, dead straightforward. When you look at an all bat, if there's a vehicle attached to that call sign, it will show itself on the all bat. So if it was a, a, a pilot crew uh, and there's two, two pilot slots, maybe above that it says AH64 Apache um, and sub-reference number. So to begin with, it's quite a basic feature. Um, but would have a hopefully a good new feature, but also quality of life. Because when you're slotting for an APC role, you actually know what whether it's an M113, i.e., the best APC in the game, or you know a striker. Um, so you've actually got some sort of reference. Uh, and then down the line, you know, we'll probably extend that to give vehicles their own dossier profiles and add some persistency to assets and make a bit more of a what should we say impact if you crash a Chinook that's been on 60 previous missions for example so we'll build on that but as a basic thing vehicles and all parts um, and then next to that you've got the campaign intel and storyline system so a good mind map of this in, in the mission making channel but essentially that is another mod that's you know quite high priority in that area and that is um moving away slightly from upwards and having this area of the site dedicated to that campaign that has the running store um, and the intel um, and really breaking that down into something going to explore but also is really for the campaign managers so the other part of that which I'll come back to in a minute but if you look at further over in quality of life you see again we're going to probably move away from having boards that release you know three hours before a mission and breaking them into modules so as soon as we certain segments of the op board it will be released in a sort of facebook feed style thing so you might get the situation first then you get the then you get the execution a bit closer and it will be in a more digestible format but obviously if you only decided to day of the operation you'd obviously have all the info read it in succession but um these have always historically been pushed back as sort of developments because things like the fatigue system come along and it's a problem that needs to be solved and you know new features the yellow ones here will always get pushed back if there's high priority quality of life stuff that needs to be done you know making sure unit have stuff here is kind of more important than coming up with a new feature because you can have as many new features you've got no one in then it's not that useful
have a look at some of the others? Or are you good? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, we, we can do. I'll, I'll probably not spend too much time on these. What I'll do is I'll through them because some people probably maybe won't know what some of them are. So if I just spin through them all really quickly, and then if people have got questions or want to expand on stuff, we can we can. So yeah, talked about yeah. vehicle on all bats, modular all bat, uh, Opel, sorry, Campbell, Intel, line systems. So you got those modular FTX lesson plans. So a lot of our NCOs are doing a great job taking and then putting them into like lesson formats. It was something that Sharkhouse started. He he was a school teacher, so sort of right up his street. So we're going to build systems to to support that, so that when you go to an FTX. Or, and, or if you're instructing one, you know, there's a an actual uh, structure to it. There is now, but it's just not in the website. It's external to the website. Um, in the middle there, expanded playable factions. You know, this is new. It's future brief and it's so called. Historically, we've not touched certain factions like Russia. Um, we've got better it with Aisha, but I foresee that we'll probably loosen those constraints a fair bit and see some much more unique um, operations under the special operations, special deployments campaign. So so not necessarily campaigns of them, but certainly expect to see um, some more openness and willingness, right? some some more, not Star Wars, before you say Star Wars, but, you know, um, loosen that and, and, you know, a bit more variety in that regard. SCP. Um, <laughs> master ARs and applied learning. So. This is something that I find really interesting. So we, we have had the AAR system, you know, and we use it extensively. Um, but something that I found since we've grown is we don't we don't um, review it enough. So so we read a lot of AAR. But what I want to start doing is on operations and on FTX is whoever it is that ran that is at the end to go through it all and then to write us without you know naming names and. and um, specific circumstances, you know, if you read 36A, what I want to do is I want to go through that and go, right, what three things did you learn, went well, what didn't go well, and then submit that, can master after action report, and we'll maybe even make that public, because uh, what I think we're great at is giving the feedback, and believe me, you know, I read every AAR basically of any op I'm on, but, you know, all the field leaders read their after action report, and, but, but the thing is, we've got no summary, and so I think that's a great thing that we you know we can do to um, make sure we're applying the things we're actually learning continually um, RP dossier profiles basically profiles like you have but for role play characters so that they can have their own profiles people can comment on them and you've got like a an actual character to, to, to role play when, when you get given it um, replayable special deployment we've only ever replayed like two ops in our history the, there's a special operation this week, or special deployment, sorry, this week, um, which is basically like a campaignless mission. Expect to see more of those. I would actually quite like to see some scripted missions made that we do replay that, are, that you know uh, over time. So certainly that that's something again we'll probably try and do to break up the campaign system a little bit and do some slightly different deployments. In the past we've done you know specials. Um, for different themes and stuff, and that that also falls in that category. Uh, improved role progression. I'll come back to that. Asset persistence. Talked about that. So if you've got an Apache, give it a dossier. It has its own deployment record. It has who flew it and when, who crashed it, its graveyard number when it when Jari inevitably crashes it during auto rotation, whatever it may be, that sort of thing. Um, again, not super high priority, but 
builds on that sort of system that we have. Um, asset management and logistics for campaigns, crash action, or that Apache, you know, one doesn't magically appear some some persistency to the logistics and how assets are managed would also come into that. And then experience-based role access, sort of back to what Squiddo said before, which is, you know, Squiddo's considered whatever tier in medical he is, but maybe he's actually a lot better than the tier gives him credit for. So we, you know, we need to have additional system. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to have additional system, tier system that, that can tell us. And there was a sit rep a while back that explained how work, where it's your tier plus whether you're qualified or not and how that would affect your ability to deploy. But again, when this roadmap's finalised and, it, and it's in a linear order, you'll be able to see where that sits priority-wise. Um, so that's most of the sort of new features there. And then you go back down to uh, improve other game rallying with scheduling, paying people to yeah. play. To James, play. yeah. Just a few people in the chat saying your comms are cutting out a bit. Oh dear. I'll try and uh, just let me know if it keeps doing it. Um, uh, other games uh, rallying, so like you can ping people to play uh, DCS or whatever it may be, but you can't schedule that. So like if you wanted to play that with other people in your tough, there's not really a good way of doing that. So that's something we'll probably look at. So you can sort of say, actually, I'd like a uh, rust with people and Friday at seven or war game and give a little bit of ability to do that because I think that's uh, useful. Um, campaign management tools again sort of goes back to that intel thing like giving the people that run these campaigns um, an actual space to, to do it to put their objectives to put their maps um, we had a good STG2 meeting last month or this month sorry I know it was this month because I got a parking ticket when I was on it um, right here uh, uh, so stuff like that one pages so everyone knows what a one pager is one pages for certain roles like if you're a medic having a one pager for what you should do not just that block of, of SOP um, CSIP uh, continual SOP improvement program so we, we have to always relook at SOP um, and improve it there's a big bunch of SOP changes coming in the next sit rep um, we can't get complacent with our SOP if we find something working there's a better way we've got to change that right so that, that's something that we have to have to make um, access delegation you know we get in bed with this um, the less that I'm required to, to, to do things the better and the more we spread out between the offices and the the better protected unit app will be in the long term so that's a big part of future proofing and, and quality of life um, and then if you go to future proofing so unit app guide so we need there's a lot of new people listening to this uh, podcast live new to Unitaf, like maybe how they found the new joining experience and we can probably make that better again um, support for other and multiple games we've talked about that before, it's future proofing why because at the moment our system only supports armor so you know when you create an op it just assumes it's armor 3 we've got to rebuild that system now to say actually when you're scheduling an op game you schedule it not because we're planning on playing another game tomorrow because we can't wait till that games released and then build that system it would take too long so it's, it's just part of future briefing to make sure we're ready for that systems are prepared for that when it comes um, continuing steady growth you know i say it all the time if we're not growing we're dying 
lot of that is keeping hold of the people we've already got, which historically we've been quite good at retention of, of medium to long term members. But um, we must continue to uh, to grow and to maintain our size. But more importantly than that, it's got to be the right people and the people with the right skills. You know, we talked about before having sort of, uh, you know, we have skill shortages, so we have to try and target those things and get people on board that are able to help us with the challenges that we've got. Uh, but everyone, you know, has a purpose here. You know, we're quite picky with the people we select, but at the same time. Uh, when well, we've got a cap to sort of how many people we're, we're willing to have at any one time, as we do at them, we have to be selective about those people. Um, and yeah, expanded all about editor capabilities just sort of falls under. At the moment, you can't do everything you need to be able to do via the all about editor, and so that's something that we'll double back on and make sure that you know we fix so that anyone that's a field leader is able to do everything that you know me and Kevin can do at the moment. So. Looking back at it, just overall, it's all about new features, keeping you know existing members interested, and having more variety in what we're doing in operations, making sure that they're still at a high standard. From a future briefing point of view, less reliance on individual people. Not that Unitaf is hyper reliant on individual people; it's quite good at spreading the workload and, and authority. And then quality of life, making it easier for the people that do make Unitaf tick to make Unitaf tick. So this is subject to change. There's probably stuff that isn't on there that will end up on there. There's maybe stuff on there that will come on. But over the next two weeks, you know, we're gonna try and get the all seriously thinking about this. And as well as the wider unit as well, if people have got ideas that they want to see, let us know, you know, and we'll it's never a fixed document, as you know, the roadmap. It just gives us a bit of direction for the ship for what we want to focus on, you know over the preceding period. Awesome. There's a lot of stuff to, to unpack there, but um, if you want a, a more in-depth look at that in your own time, then yeah, it will be in the in the separate coming soon TM. Yeah, it should, um, should be on the turn of the month, I think, the next one. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Zuka, do we have any, are there any questions from the chat? Or Indeed we... we do, yeah. Cool. Awesome. Uh, first one that's burning on a few people's tongue is, what the hell is CSIP on the roadmap? I think we touched on that, so it's continual it, SAP improvement, yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, then a few other ones that have been asked uh, was uh, something I think we've already talked about is how many tubes of AT should an LAT have? So AT4s, for example, or M136s? Yeah, I think this is a slightly controversial uh, topic. So they should only have one. But I think I think the reason the question's been asked is because some cheeky LATs put uh, additional rockets in their backpack, which we will look into. Um, another anonymous question we got was, uh, will we ever bring back Herrick? Zero? Um... Sorry, what? I mean, I would I would say yeah, there's a great potential for it. It just the nature of Herrick it was quite different compared to the other campaigns that were going on at the time, and it took it yeah, it was it was a lot of it was a lot of extra work that had to be done. Um, but having said that, a lot of that work is already now done. So yeah, there's a, there's a chance. It, a lot of it, uh, I guess, depends on. 
uh, myself and Matt and Jari and, and uh, the others who were uh, a part of making um, Herrick what it was. But yeah, I would I would love to see Herrick come back. It was it, it was quite unique compared to a lot of the, the other campaigns we had. For, for the people that are listening that ever went to Herrick Op or don't know on earth what you're talking about, what what may makes Herrick different? Um... So. So how we how what we try to do with Herrick is, it was persistent like most of our campaigns are obviously. Um, but what we what we tried to do was separate as much as possible the interaction between the DMs and the field leaders. That was one of the one of the primary things we did. So we wouldn't create a mission for them and be in contact with them, find out exactly what they wanted to do they would tell us what they wanted to do and we would make sure they had the assets to do it. And then we would act as the enemy forces, the enemy commander, and we would have our own objectives that would be completely separate from whatever it was the field leaders wanted to do. And there would the, the battle would essentially be these two opposing forces trying to get their own objectives completed and, and facing off from each other. And the enemy had very uh, specific assets. They We didn't create them, but essentially they had their own orbat. We, we had a fixed number of enemy assets and, and so we had to use them very carefully just like we use our own assets when, when we play in missions so um, yeah we as Matt's just posted in the chat um, they had a, a fixed leadership um, structure as well and those field leaders were in and around the map and you could uh, use real world uh, sort of like like real world but in game intel you know by questioning people and, and finding intel um and, and uh, through hearts and minds stuff uh gain intelligence on the location and the operations and the movements of those um high value targets and, and then uh, if the field leaders wanted to they could create missions uh where they go after those uh those high value targets or or the enemy infrastructure or, or whatever it was but it was it was much more the field leaders are the ones who decide what and where they go and the Zeus is just make sure that they have what they need to do it and then we do the same thing that, that as they opt for. Yeah, it's interesting because in essence that's actually how every campaign is supposed to work. Um, but I think the reality is that you know, that's not always the case and that's just, like I say, it goes back to that as Unitaf gets bigger, you know, making that work all the time can become more difficult and I know Op Parable has done something very similar to this and they did a great job of you know this sort of having these stories uh, these these individuals set and, and crossing them off the board and uh, all that sort of stuff and I think it's great and you know um, one of the reasons why I wrote a funny story I mean one of the reasons why I made that Op or Sunday so novel like in terms of the way it was read was because I knew what we were asking people to maybe a little bit ambitious so I wanted to talk through the thinking of it and I think when people understand the bigger picture of the mission it's easier to enjoy it right because you understand what's happening around you and the contribution you're making even if it's a small contribution to, to something much bigger and I think that's probably the same with Herrick which is you know I always remember in missions where like we've lost an MRAP and it got stolen and then in the next two missions later you see it painted black driving somewhere and that sort of persistency and that sort of character to the enemy is what really makes that depth a bit more you know we always say some people just don't or GMs quite often say you know people just don't care about the intel 
and to some extent that's true but i think where the campaign center would massively help with stuff like this is putting a face to the enemy and uh making it almost you know like a i was going to say cluedo but i've never played cluedo you know what i mean like there's a, there's some sort of meta game to the intelligence and having to work out how to how to use it and that's kind of what i think we can achieve with bolt-ons to the campaign center is that it's almost a game outside of the game which carries outside of armor 3 and into armor 4 or whatever yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that kind, yeah, that that was sort of the aim was to for the for the field leadership, but especially like you know, it was Ben who was basically in command of of the four sides that was there in the missions that we played is is to bring the uh, a, a game within a game where you know a strategy and resource management game, um, which is something that we that we'd all, we've always talked about with UNSAF to to have have that level of. Um, uh, of control and, and interaction with the game, and uh, yeah, but they they had that in in Herrick uh, to to a certain degree. Uh, that was sort of the last thing that we were working on before we uh, put it on hold. Um, yeah, and then depending on what they you know, so they they basically they took over uh, the uh, control of an airbase that was quite heavily damaged, and and because of that they couldn't they didn't have fixed wing air assets, and they couldn't bring in uh, additional uh, supplies and troops through. Uh, you know c-130s and so on um and so uh yeah in order to do that they would have to bring in uh, royal engineers who would try and repair it and you know stuff like that to make make it make it truly interactable but in a in a really dynamic way you know so it's not it's not all just about killing the enemy it's about actually securing a province and making a base workable and all that sort of stuff yeah and stuff that's on that roadmap and you know we've talked about before about the campaigns that are simple things uh, that sort of like civilian reputation rating, you know, we've all seen missions where, you know, unfortunate accidents, maybe they're not accidents happen. And sometimes that can be a misunderstanding, you know, it can be, I was going to say accidentally deliberate if you want to interpret it out however you want. Um, but having an actual uh, statistical estimation, so, well, you know, your civilian reputation has dropped by, you know, 10% or, you know, these sort of things that dynamically affect all following missions will, I think, uh, and we've seen it in the past. You know, earlier on we said to people, you know, when you when there's an enemy vehicle, you can destroy it, or if you leave it and the engineer salvage, take it back to the base, and it'll have some bonus to our supply or whatever. And you know, when we started saying that, of course, all the field leaders were just like, oh, I've got three pickups here and you know two APCs, and so when we start to roll that out whenever that may be and they'll have to roll across all campaigns you know there will be a change in behavior like you say it's not about killing things it's going to affect the way we make decisions as leaders yeah absolutely yeah i think that it'll bring a whole different level to our to our games especially for those people who are involved in those different things um including you know things like logistics and and uh, actually having you know because uh, that was one of the things that, that eric had too was like that they actually had like a core of engineers and it would be their job to do all the engineering stuff and so like you could have multiple games going on um within within the one game um yeah it'd be really cool to see that sort of stuff um uh, i don't think you've considered the emotional toll that it may take on people like i remember um one of my fondest memories of herrick was uh driving that boxy little uh 
ambulance yeah. around and i i grew quite attached to that and i was absolutely convinced that you were going to take it away from me in like some sort of fiery death and I'm, if there was something like that that was like more persistent they were like you know campaigns and stuff i don't know i'm not sure i could take it when we inevitably lose i've always like yeah that's a great example and the tanks in world two uh, these crews that, that were crewing them and they, you know they've got like watermarked pictures with the names on and stuff <laughs> um that that's exactly right and i've always said that you know if you've got let's take that ambulance as an example let's say squiddo's done 30 ops with the ambulance that's registration is dfc61 and he's given it a nick we, we'd allow you know nicknames to be put on them and you've nicknamed it squiddo's you know ambo or something and you go on holiday and you come back and Bex has been out in it and he totaled it and it's no longer in circulation, shall we say. You know, I'd be inconsolable. That that would just be the biggest topic of conversation in general chat for the next, you know, week. Um, same as a Chinook, you know, if a Chinook reaches a hundred missions and on the hundred and first mission, like I say, someone nosedives it into the ground, you know. I know that's slightly unfortunate for that person, but that's I think a real value add to what we're doing and if you're in that vehicle or that aircraft you know that there's a sort of link between that and and, and how long that asset's been in circulation i think you may it might change the way you play as that asset yeah absolutely when when things have more value you tend to to be a bit more careful with them but yeah i mean dossier profiles for the vehicles and then squiddo can have a your profile for your ambulance and you can have pictures of it and <laughs> that, all that stuff uh, similar to how it works for people I've always said that was uh, something worth doing like I said I think these sort of things don't affect whether armor 3 is armor 4 or armor 5 you know I think those sort of changes are worth the investment because they'll probably be used for games to come Awesome. Zuko, were there any other questions that came in? Uh, there was one, but it's kind of short written. And uh, I'll just say what it reads here and is that uh, micromanage, micromanagement, does it really need to happen? And best guess is that's for leadership. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult to answer that kind of question. I mean, it's easy and difficult. Um, easy in the sense of SOP clearly dictates that micromanagement should probably not happen uh, unless it's absolutely necessary uh, and it's difficult to answer because there's no context to it so without uh, you know a specific instance about what that question is around it's quite hard to, to answer but yeah I mean as Matt is saying in in chat although it may be said in jest like there, there is always going to be some level of micromanagement um, because sometimes you just you need something done in a specific way and and you have to perhaps overstep the person below you and say, I need you to do this in this way. But generally speaking, you, you need to rely on the people under you. And you know, if you're in a field leadership position, you need to have faith that they know what they're doing and allow them to get on with what they're doing. And you get on with what you're doing and hopefully things work out for the best. Yeah, I think, I think Zero is exactly right. Con context to that would be great. Because uh, the the simple answer is no micromanagement is generally considered bad. But I've just posted in the chat for those listening live that 
P15134, which is the, it's not really a policy, it's just a principle on, on our approach to micromanagement. I always say, what I always say in every leadership FTX, you tell me what to do, you don't tell me how to do it. Um, and obviously the only, uh, only time that's not the case, you know, is if you've told someone what to do and they're not able to do it or they're not performing it properly or however that's deemed. That's where micromanagement comes in. It's your job as a leader if somebody's not doing what you've asked them or what you expect them to, to help them along the way, and that's essentially what micromanagement is. But as the person prompting the question points out, you know, most of the time it shouldn't happen and it should be avoided. But there are times, you know, it is needed. Absolutely. Um, if there's anybody listening live who wants to pose any questions, uh, then now is a good time to do so. Uh, there's another James question have... yeah, on the uh, so on the pre-submitted question. So there is a, a form you can use to submit anonymous or uh, non-anonymous questions. So again, it's a short question. It's not even phrased the question. It's just people who are ex-military. I suppose we could expand that to current or former service members. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting one. I think I think you'll 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 definitely agree that, that like, there's pros and cons to both, right? Like a potential, you know, con to that is that how things are in real life in the real life military are not how things are here. And if you can't separate those things, you're probably going to have a bit of a difficult time. And if you're you know shouting at people for for doing things, you know, they're like, well, we don't do that in the military. It's you know, you're probably you're probably not going to find a, a very warm response. To that in most situations, but there's definitely I think there's definitely more pros uh, than there are cons because the yeah the sort of level of knowledge and experience that those people have, um, especially I think even if in their military career they're not um, NCOs themselves, like they generally have a a really good idea about how the chain of command works and how to organise things and um, and stuff like that. I, I definitely think it's they. People who are either active military or ex-military bring a lot to to UNICEF. Yeah, definitely. I think you know we've got a lot of former and, and current currently serving members in UNITAF, and one of the biggest things I lean on them for, like we've got this scenario, we've got this concept. Is this realistic? You know, how, what what would happen? In, you know, in reality, if this if this was this scenario was playing out, you know, would you use artillery for this? Would you? Those are the sort of questions I would always constantly lean in on some sort of uh, more seasoned, you know, me members of the military and, and those that have done a lot of talk, specifically because a lot of our campaigns at the moment are out in the Middle East, you know, where the hands-on experience. Um, and, you know, but then also go back to realism where it matters. Game, uh, what we do and what you saw on Sunday, you know, a, a lot of the cases is far more... Um, eventful should we say than your average three hours in the middle east you know the it's a game at the end of the day and we're in the entertainment and that part of realism where it matters is you know we do things the way they're done in real life if it makes sense if it's enjoyable um and if it's not enjoyable or it doesn't make sense then we try to avoid it and um i've always tried to avoid it you know if you go on it to look at like recruitment posts i've always found it odd that you know um, a unit might say we're run by active or former service men 
I don't think being in the military is going to give you the skill set to necessarily you know, run an organisation like UNITAF. Uh, I think it's completely different. As Zero says, I think, you know, this is ultimately leading 125 people for the active force that really have probably never met in real life and there's some exceptions. Um, it's a completely different kind of fish. Um, but like you say, there's definitely advantages to it. Um, I just try to avoid the worshipping part that, that is quite common in the, the wider community too. Um, you know, treat it as gospel. I think I think there's a lot to be said for remembering, like you say, that it is a game, and uh, you know we have to to find our own ways sometimes of doing things. But we take a lot of we draw a lot of inspiration from the real world for our procedures and um, our structure. Okay, it's mostly US based, which gives a massive disadvantage to you know our UK service members like Skelly that. You know, they in their day job they're taught everything's one way, and then in UNITAF we tell them it's a different one because uh, it's all US and different. Um, and Skelly did tell me once that he was teaching a class um, his his work. And he used the UNITAF <laughs> terminology for oh, no. one of the manoeuvres, uh, which was obviously American, not not British. So it can be a downside in that case because you're you'll come here and be told something in an FTX and you, you believe it inherently to be wrong because, trust me, British servicemen don't agree with the US tactics and the US servicemen don't agree with the British tactics, but unfortunately we have to have one one uh, truth for everyone and so um, definitely has its pros and cons. Yeah, I mean, for any of those um, people listening live or, or in the podcast that, who are uh, mission developers, like those those people um, who are active members of the military or, or ex ex service people, um, they're really good. They're really good assets. Really good consultants. You know, uh, we, we used Skelly quite a bit for Herrick to get um, real world, you know, intel on on what how it actually operated. You know, how how it actually worked and and what it was like to to be there. And I think that it adds like another level of uh, authenticity to. To missions and to, to campaigns when you, uh, you you know get some get some real world uh, advice and experience from these people. Definitely, I just seen um, on the chat Mohawk uh, comment. I don't want to uh, dox anyone by if they don't want uh, publicly to be known, but obviously Mohawk's um, got a lot of experience and and uh, in the real world and actually um, from the US, so so specific to the procedures we actually use. Um, so it's always interesting to get to get Mohawk's perspective on things. And I remember when Mohawk first joined. Um, so I don't know if he wants to say anything about. But, um, he's saying now uh, the only thing he, that's different is that we don't say it over on the radio, which is true. Um, although there is a pending SOP review uh, for that. Um, so that that may well change, but certainly for the last two years, it's been the case. Um, I've always seen it as relatively unnecessary. The speed of our comms at a platoon level, you know, and the fact that it's relatively reliable, you know, we tend to hear someone um, tend to get by with two thousand less words on a night by not saying over. But it's definitely got its um, its uh, reasons, and it it may be something that gets reviewed a a bit later. Yeah, I found I don't know why, but I found on Sunday when I was fighting meeting that that I added over and. On, on toward my comms and out when I didn't need a reply. Um, it, 
it does it, it certainly does add a certain something like i think it lets the other person know that you have definitely finished whatever it was you were saying um, yeah for, for sure and and there's definitely times where i go you know what that's a great idea um i suspect it's gonna be a heated debate at officer level because we are so used to not doing it and for someone that you know i when I when I do comms at a busy mission, like getting used to saying that if if we the switch, I think would be quite difficult for me after so long not doing it. Just the same as I think for Mohawk, it's difficult. Like he's saying after twenty four years saying it, it's difficult not to say it. And uh, whilst I've not been not saying it for so long, I can relate to that um, that difficulty. But yeah, so <laughs> Matt Matt's saying that there on one of Mohawk's first missions, his fire team leader was. I think on his first outing as a fire team leader, as Mohawk just said there, yeah, he's probably got 20 experience um, of those procedures. And his fire team leader took him on a wedge on with half the wedge exposed on the tree line, and I remember Mohawk commenting about it, which I found quite amusing. We didn't tell the fire team leader that Mohawk had that background. <laughs> Cool. Well, are there any any other questions from anywhere or anything that anybody wants to to add? We're coming up on two hours, so definitely. I think uh, one of those things like over is one of those weird one certain things that we do or don't do that's like distinctively milsim. Like we we had a conversation, you know, probably eighteen months ago, didn't we, about whether we should bother having ranks or not, you know. And I think when we were talking about it, you know, we ended up to a summary of like, uh, without the Mitch feels a bit, bit, I think we were maybe coming up with alternate names. It's one of those things, isn't it? It's just over is just considered to be what people hear in films and stuff. It's a direct correlation with realism, I think. Yeah, I think it. it's a fairly, I say, as it currently stands, it's fairly easy because there's not an SOP that says do not say over. So if you, you know, Mohawk, if you want to say over at the end of your comms, you know, go for it. Um, yeah, I think it'd definitely be a, it would be a thing that we'd have to give people a lot of grace on because it's not something that most of us are used to, used to say. Yeah, and I, th I think comms is a really interesting one because there's a, a few NCOs now or joined NCOs that are really passionate about updating that part of our procedures and um, you know obviously CSIP continual soft improvement is, is going to be a big part of, of right now and going forward so we'll be definitely receptive to that um, it, it's it's so strange though because I think in, in parts of what we do we have reached like the most optimal path to the end result so in the real military um it's really important that those procedures are rigid because if not someone might die or something catastrophic could happen you know lives are genuinely at risk we've got to a point you know in these large company scale ops where we're that we're very efficient at communication so when you've got these experienced people two experienced platoons and a company command the speed of information going back is very high but there's not a lot of risk to what we're saying because ultimately it's a game. So we don't say out, we don't say over, but we're probably more efficient with the actual getting information across. And that's just because we're taking the shortest route 
the end result, which is I need this to happen, so how can I make that happen type thing? And so that's always that balance of where do you do something slightly less efficient but more realistic and so on and so forth. It's kind of realism where it matters. I think it is good practice stuff and, and I think even SOP says that we must say out and I don't think even I say out that often. So we'll definitely um, have a look at comms and it'll be on the hit list of uh, SOP updates, I think. Yeah, because I mean, ultimately comms is like probably one of the most important things regardless of where you are in the COC on the field. Like good comms equals, you know, good good times, I think. Um, I yeah. just got another question, if we've got time for that. Yeah, go for it. And that would be from uh, Storm in the chat. Uh, this question would be, what, a, um, what about more massive aerial missions for pilots? So, for example, having almost just pilots, I'm guessing, here, Storm, without having too much of infantry going on. Actually, we've done yeah. similar ones for ground... Ground assets, right? Like armor only missions. Yeah, I think I think I think it's possible. It's even there's nothing stopping it now. I mean, to go back to the roadmap, like part of um quality of life is just like getting more people involved in the mission making process. I think the reason why you wouldn't see necessarily just fixed wing only operations is because of the investment of the GM time. But to go back to what I said about scripted missions. There's no reason why someone couldn't make a like a replayable scenario for aircrew, and rather than that, maybe be an FTX. It's um, you know it's an op that, that's run for for pilots. Maybe like it's a carrier based thing, and maybe there's just a, a small four man forward air tactical air control party that that, that play on the ground, and you know, it could be like a twelve man op where you've got six guys on the ground, six guys in the air, um, but no Zeus. You know that could be a great thing to to design. Um, and, and it could be randomised slightly in the editor so that at the time you play it it's a bit different but that sort of thing is genuine combat experience right in roles that don't crop up that frequently so I, I don't think that's um, off the table at all I think it's just the incentive of you know, just remember like you don't need to nobody really needs our go ahead to say yeah do it I mean that's perfectly acceptable if somebody made that um, I'm sure we would we would run it so um Definitely, I, we spoke about this in the past. Same for for recon teams. Because I think it's absolutely fine to have these ops with these really small teams. These sort of uncommitted. It could be artillery as well. I just think they'd have to be scripted because I, I don't think we could justify having an experienced game master on it on a that only had you know four or five people on it. And that's not a bad thing either. Actually, that just raises a question for me, and uh, if you have any updates on the campaign and during Freedom, because I mean, we did sort of try that there, didn't we? Having a GMS campaign. Yeah, so I think that's a bit different because that's so enduring Freedom was an attempt at the campaign model, but using no Zeus. So that's a little bit different because what we're trying to do is the traditional campaign model. Uh, what I guess I'm saying there, is, and and with enduring Freedom, really. I'm not sure if we if we'll maybe continue to pursue that. I think what well, we've we probably tested that enough to go. Actually, with campaigns, we probably want human intervention, um, and it probably doesn't work how we want it to work. When I say um, 
a, a better way to look at it is when when they're not campaign operations. So so think for a year, you've got four campaigns, and the campaigns have got full economy and resource management. Right, you're not just going to be able to pull four tanks out out your ass and and do a tank op because it's going to be all controlled, right? Based on the campaign progression. If you haven't got an airfield, where are the aircraft come from? So the the part that special deployments will play here is right. Well, we want to have a big op and we want to have aircraft carriers and aircraft and tanks and stuff. So special operations could be these sort of non-campaign attached things. So maybe they're just one-off operations that have set assets and they're not not part of the campaign. And I think to to in the Threedon, Zuka's an experienced mission maker. So um, in Threedon, to design a, an upon a small island where there's like a big enemy base say and they've got some armor and that mission could be designed entirely in the editor as a replayable mission that has probability chance of patrols being in certain locations you know probably take someone a couple of hours to design that and then that could go into a bank of missions that can be played as special deployments and maybe the orbat for that mission is a couple of snipers a recon team and a tactical air control party and they deploy you know, via a skydive, and then there's these jets that come off the carrier, and together they do this sort of mission where they're bombing, you know, with laser designators or whatever it may be, specific targets, and that's just the mission, and it's only, you know, a small team. It's not Zeus, it's um, it's like a replayable combat experience for those roles, if that makes sense. I'm just personally not a big fan of completely scripting missions, because with Zeus, it's, it's a great tool, you can control so much from or without even having it be known like controlling the flow of a mission or a button in when for example someone flips their MRAP which uh, happens quite a lot and just yeah, little little incisions like that I think are quite invaluable I, think you're, I agree which is why I think 90% of our missions 100% of our missions right now are Zeus that GM'd, and not just by one person, usually by a duplicity of people. But you know, I when I first started playing this game, you know, that was the only way to do. It. And there's other our peers around the armor community scoff at our use of Zeus. You know, the Germans, uh, the German communities that we've done joint ops with. You know, they'll only do it that way, and they'll make arguments. You know, like the objective should only have that fixed amount of stuff in it you know and then when you replay it you know if you did it one time or the time before and you know it's actually quite common in the wider community to just have a bank of missions like 200 missions and then you just say well, what are we going to play this you know and they just pick them and i'm not saying that's the direction we're going to go in i'm just saying it's a it's a relatively successful model that's been used throughout you know the armor community forever and um, I don't see any reason why we couldn't have a bank of... Uh, essentially, that's what that special deployments campaign is there for, is for one-off missions that are not tied into a wider story. And I don't see any reason why if someone had a great idea, um, this one that's happening this week, this I can't remember the name of, but this uh, impossible mission that Matt Crossy are running sort of falls into the category. It's something that's designed, and whilst that one might be Zeus, it's essentially replayable. Uh, but I know what you're saying about scripting. I, d I don't agree with predetermined outcomes to missions, but most decent missions that are designed outside of Zeus are dynamic and they have multiple outcomes. So, you know, when you design it in the edit, you say this patrol is going to go this way and they have a 50% chance of being present. That Every time that PBO loads, it's different. Um, 
and it has a fail condition in it, condition, for example. Yeah, I uh, agree. I think the, the mission you were talking about is uh, Uniashi Maru. The sort of uh, yeah. uh, hard... Uh, just, I think. Yeah, it is. Uh... <laughs> yeah, man. Um, but having these sort of special deployments, uh, how much out there would you allow them to be even? How much what, sir? Uh, like how much not in the scope of a campaign or just having to be a bit more something special like for example an SCP op or uh, something futuristic, paranormal, all of these other things we can do. Yeah, so I, I think this is just the same as like the, the same reason why you know I, I'm noticed you know we're not a multi-gaming community and if you know people lose their interest in armor you know we have to just put them to the to the side and say you know you're part of the total force but you're not part of the active forces because we have to focus on what the objectives of the group are so the actually to that is always just going to be as long as the majority of what we do is what we set out to do then that's fine and you know when we do scp or when we do these sort of slightly out there special deployments or festive specials is you know then they're special because they don't happen every week they're really refreshing and they're, they're different as long as that doesn't start to be the majority or, or near the majority of or a large part of what we do then we're not going to start uh, relying on them because what we don't want is people to join UNITAF because we do SCP and then suddenly everything just goes it's a really important wider community management that we stay focused on what what we set out to do but as long as it's not an overarching balance it will never be a, a problem but um i don't just see special deployments as those um as a, as a campaign um, let's call those festive specials if you like just to put them aside but in terms of like one-off missions that might be scripted playable i think you could do as many of those as you realistically wanted to i think the more that UNITAF ops are part of the campaign system when that's fully implemented, the more interesting that will be. But I, I love the idea of having like a an airfield raid mission, which is replayable that we play, you know, every two months. Because what tends to happen is people remember it and go, you know, a great mission. I'd love to do that one again. And I'd love to see if we could do it better or faster or whatever. I do think there's something to be said about um, having replayable scenarios that we it's, it's something that's completely untapped in UNITAF really yeah and I also think it would help with a few people who have this, this cool mission idea but can't really uh, assign it or bend or break it to fit any of the campaigns which is uh, what I've sadly had to do quite a bit with Brimstone because I had so many first timers come up to me and say hey I have so many or I, have a, I have a great idea can i do this in brimstone and then i kind of had to stop them here and there and say oh no we've already been in that area or we've already done that and oh that wouldn't really fit the story it's always a bit heartbreaking for me but yeah i think that's a pretty good solution to that problem and, and we've talked recently about um because me and zuka were talking about the uh two-year special which we've postponed a little bit because of uh, father's day last week and this week uh, we postponed it again because Dung's away and he's quite involved in that but we spoke a bit about actually when we do these longer missions if we 
six hour mission uh, you know we don't use a lot of the maps that are available for armor because we need a big map like lithium to give us longevity so that when we set these campaigns up we've actually got you know life out of them and not we're not wasting a lot of time but um there's so many good small maps that could work for one-off operations and so expect to see not just with the two-year special but probably what you know I, I would like to encourage it wider if there's a two kilometer squared map there's no reason why someone can take that away design a mission on it that becomes a replayable mission um you know capitalize on the loadout systems that we've using mods that you know are pretty um, and we can start to explore some of these areas that encroach on active campaigns that give us a completely different experience um and, and that's kind of where i see the direction of special deployments going is it's just non-campaign related but you know these really really specific missions they might be shorter you know they, they don't have to there's nothing saying a mission has to be three hours these could be you know one hour 20 minute raids um, maybe you do two of them in an evening i don't know also gives you a really good option um sometimes you know scheduling wise you know everyone's away father's day is a great example um, so if we need a break from a campaign, you know, we can throw in a special deployment uh, if, if people uh, enjoy it and, and it gives us a scheduling uh, fallback if we if we can't um, stick to our normal schedule, for example. Yeah, glad to hear. I mean, sure, there's a lot of people with great ideas and uh, please do bring them up and see if we can uh, make them into an operation. Yeah. Um, storm, capture enemy assets, repair it, and fight against the enemies. That's an interesting concept. I think you'd, you'd have campaign. to be you'd have to be playing the right the right faction for that to make sense. I think. Wouldn't you? Mm. I think I whispers about I think a PMC campaign where that could work quite well. Yeah. What well, one of the issues, and, and the reason why we've been quite conservative about expanding. The types of missions to the factions is because what makes a lot of our leaders good and a lot of our GMs good is that they understand the capabilities and I, you know as a leader I'm really used to US equipment and to British equipment to some extent and I've talked about this I think on previous podcasts I'm very used to the German equipment and there is a, an element of risk to the more variety of equipment that we use the less familiar we are as leaders but you know over time that will change and it has a bonus, which is, you know, if you've also played as Russia and you also fight Russia, then kind of understand it from both sides, which is also an advantage. So it's definitely worth thinking about, though, because that does have an impact how efficient we are uh, as a unit, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, there's always a potential, isn't there, to, to try something new and, you know. For we know it could uh, add something, add something that we'd not not thought of before. Yeah, that uh, last one there from from Korean. Yeah, uh, is interesting. So it's have we ever done a guerrilla based campaign? So you know, we're fighting an insurgency, I guess, at the moment, and we do quite often fight asymmetric enemies. But have we ever thought about playing one? Um, we've not done it in Unitaf, but in uh, yay back when I don't know if anyone if Zero or Squid were on this one mm. but back in our Armour 2 group we did play as Pakistani insurgents in a couple of missions 
and all I can remember about it was the problem with doing it is it doesn't work very well with our procedures. So our general unit will will pretty much up for anything as long as it works with our procedures because that's what everyone's taught to know. If you have to play something and then our procedures don't work and they're not efficient, it's counterproductive to to the learning part of of, of UNITAF, right? When you're playing as an insurgent, like if you think about ISIS, on the most effective thing to do is probably not to fight the way we fight. It's to fight in pockets and not as one big group because your weapons are crap. Uh, they've not got the range. You haven't got sights, and so it's all about asymmetric warfare. It's about disrupting the enemy. So what we found when we played that, and I'm, I'm talking like 30 people with RPGs and AKs, is that it was more effective to go around in the of like three, four people, and you know use IEDs and RPGs and stuff than it was to fight like we would fight, which is you know bounding Overwatch and all that stuff. Also, it just feels a bit wrong. You know, trying to do some, some big military maneuvers with with insurgents, but it's not to say it's impossible; it couldn't work. Um, but we have tried it many years ago. Uh, yeah, mix, and you think mixed results? Yeah, that, that that's the biggest obstacle to to trying to play as an insurgent force is is we're not trained to act in that way, and using like you basically all you end up doing is just changing the weapon systems and the uniforms using and you're acting in the same way that you would normally and it doesn't really play off very well you'd be better off playing perhaps as like peshmerga or something because then at least it would make it would make a bit more sense why you're operating in the way you are um it would also probably take a lot of work to actually train a bunch of guys to you know to to act as uh insurgents and use guerrilla tactics for it to be for it to be worth doing yeah i definitely like the challenge of it i think the concept of the challenge of being up at being the little guy if you like um uh, in a sort of broad sense is quite attractive but like you say it's very odd if you see a bunch of insurgent there's a guy on a long range radio going yeah roger that over you know it, it's just yeah it would have to be the right scenario and maybe special festive special um, or like you say, it's something that can be done with a public server. I'm just looking to see if we've missed anything, but I'm not seeing anything. But yeah, I think I think like I say, we'll. Uh, it's back to say there's probably going to be an ice show on Saturday so to that Brimstone on Sunday and, and there will be a two year special which um, I don't know if Zuka wants to spoil too much about it but it will be uh, essentially an evening slash afternoon uh, with a number of all bats with uh, literally an entire invasion taking place in a single day um, is, is the plan for that so that will, will come soon but everything we sort of touched on both in that uh, diagram of the roadmap will sort of be refined and confirmed in the SITREP so there's meetings this week, next week and the SITREP will fall as usual at the sort of end. so hopefully you know if, if people have got ideas share them um, with us but hopefully that will start to, to refine itself towards the SITREP which will be at the, uh, at the end of the month Awesome Cool, I guess we'll, we'll wrap this up here then um 
there's not a super solid plan for the next Tafcast, although I would probably quite like to get together with the guys who are doing the uh, Vietnam campaign. Just give that a bit of a uh, give that a bit of a promotion. So if we can't get a few more people to um, download the new DLC and and get involved in in that, um, yeah, I, thank you everybody if you stayed throughout the whole thing, and um, thank you if you're listening on the podcast. Um, thank you, Zuka, for managing the chat for us, and thanks, Squido, for being our very special guest. Um, and thanks, hello, James, as always. <laughs> And uh, yeah, just to reiterate what I said at the beginning, like thank you to everybody, uh, whether you've just joined us or you've been with us for for the full two years. Like it's uh, yeah, it's great to have you all all here and uh, playing armor together. Absolutely, thank you. Yeah, here's to here's to another two years, I guess. Happy birthday! <laughs> <laughs> oh please no! <laughs> I'm just looking at the uh, like the peaking of the. Recording and every time Scotty comes, in, it's like boom. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> <laughs>